there's a number of what are called secure design principles or principles of secure design. These are essentially the sort of universal truths about how you build a system that's resilient against attack. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is Awkward. Silence. Silence. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today, we're here with Ted Harrington, the executive partner at ISE, that is Independent Security Evaluators, and he's an InfoSec expert. He's the author of Hackable, which is an Amazon number one bestseller, and the book is about why software gets hacked and what you can do about it. Now, why are we talking about this on Awkward Silences? We're going to talk about hacking and preventing hacking in the context of UX and broadening your understanding on what might lead to such security breaches. So thank you so much, Ted, for joining us today. Of course. Thanks for having me here. Got JH here too. Yeah, I start with the important stuff. I noticed in your LinkedIn URL, it says Security Ted, and I just needed to know, does anyone call you Security Ted? Can I call you Security Ted, or is that just a URL trick? You can call me Security Ted if you want. Go for <laughs> All right, good to yeah, know. I mean, let's do it. Cool. Sec Ted for short. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So let's start from the top. You know, one of the things that UX researchers try to uncover a lot in their work is um, unsaid or unacknowledged assumptions. And I know that's really important to the work that you do when you think about where might some security vulnerabilities exist in what we're building. So talk to us a little bit about what that process looks like in the work that you do. Yeah, absolutely. This is an important topic that really isn't discussed enough in the security community in in my estimation, but what it means is that the places and the reasons why systems ultimately get broken is because of bad assumptions. So when anyone's building anything, which is essentially the core of UX, right? You're trying to build something and trying to understand how someone's going to interact with a thing in a certain way. And you want to, of course, make that as easy and pleasant and effective of a process as possible. You're starting to make some assumptions about what the user will do or won't do or will want to do or won't want to do. And what I've seen over the years of leading ethical hackers, which is it's what I do. I'm a leader of ethical hackers. We work with companies who are building things and trying to understand the flaws that they have in their systems. And where we're always looking at, we're always trying to understand is what do they think the user will do? And I'll, I can tell you <laughs> a phrase that it's going to sound like I'm making it up, but I am not making this up. I hear this all the time. People will, will be meeting with a company, whether it's our one of our existing customers or maybe a new customer, a prospective customer. And we'll be thinking about different attack scenarios. And we'll say some version of, well, what if an attacker did X? And the response will be some version of, oh, no one would think to do X. <laughs> <laughs> and we're sitting here like, I literally just did. Yeah, I just <laughs> and thought asked it, yeah. you about it. Yeah, exactly. And when people say, you know, that that perspective of, oh, no one would think that, they're not being cheeky or coy or trying to be funny. They genuinely think like, no, an attacker, I mean, a user wouldn't 
wouldn't do that. And common examples are things like, let's say that a certain input field is requiring 20 alphanumeric characters. Well, what if I put in a command? Like if you put in that command, does it actually get processed by the system to issue the command? In a lot of cases, the answer is yes. And those are the kinds of things where people are like, oh, we're building this for real estate professionals who want to make listing of for sale properties easier. Why would they ever do that? And it's like, well, what if they did? And that's what people really need to be thinking about is sort of that malicious understanding of the assumptions that are made about how a system is intended to be operated with. Because what attackers do is they find they identify those assumptions and then they poke at them and they say, well, what if something different happened? Mm -hmm. Just to, to back up a little, like when you talk about security, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is somebody in, you know, terminal at the command line hacking in and, you know, stealing data or something like, right? Like that feels very kind of obviously to be security related and preventing that. Uh, but th does it also include like people, you know, challenging assumptions to do things that are more like abusive with a piece of software or like a platform like where it's like harassment of other users or stuff like that? Or is, is that outside of what you would consider like security in, in your focus area? I love your, it's such a good question. I love the way you're asking it because that is itself one of the common misconceptions about security. People think, oh, security is just about not getting data stolen. And yeah, that's an important part, no doubt. But security is so much more than that, including all of the scenarios that you just described. And what we need to think about is motivation. Different attackers are motivated to achieve different results. And to me, that feels really straightforward, but you'd be surprised actually how many organizations think of attackers or hackers, which I'm putting in air quotes, we can talk about what hackers really are in a minute, but you know, people think about these attacker groups as if they're one idea, right? They attack systems in order to make money. And that is an, a motivation for some attacker types, but there are plenty of motivations. So you talked about the idea of using a platform to harass somebody that Sure, if someone has some sort of cause that they want to advocate for, there's an attacker group or a category of attackers that's called hacktivists. And these are attackers that attack in order to advocate for some sort of cause. And it's exactly what you said. Yeah. Another motivation is the explorer mindset, like someone who is curious and wants to just prove that they can do it. So mm -hmm. there's a, an attacker group that's known as the casual hacker or the small group hacker. And basically they want to prove they can do it right there. It's an exploration. It's a challenge. And sometimes it's even just doing a prank, right? Like there's an example that happened in San Francisco a few years ago where, you know, those digital construction signs they're orange along the side of the freeway when there's you know road work being done or whatever a group or an unidentified group or individual attacked those so they changed the message and it said instead of saying like you know this exit is closed or whatever it said it said godzilla attack turn back <laughs> pretty good and that's certainly godzilla certainly wasn't attacking you know that was a different kind of attack and that was someone who was just they wanted to do it. They wanted to see if they could do it. And they proved that they could do it. This feels like, that's like the hacker's hacker, I feel like, right? That's like, like for the, the love kid. of the hack. Yeah, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. just like I did it because I could. For the love of the hack. For the love I'm going to go hack. make a t-shirt that says that. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned starting with the assumptions and like, you know, users wouldn't do this or, or however, however you phrased it. When you are hired by a company to come in and help them identify, you know, gaps in their security, 
Like, what does that look like? Do you come in and, and look at it with fresh eyes and play with the software yourself to, to try to understand what assumptions they might be making? Do you try to interview the people who made the software to see what assumptions they may have made, you know, talk to users? Like, how do you actually go about like kind of collecting that initial information to start getting the wheels turning of like where there might be weakness or opportunities to kind of get in there? Yeah, there's a few ways that uh, organizations like ours work with companies. There's a right way and there is a wrong way. The wrong way is what's called black box testing. And black box testing basically says that's where uh, a company will say, all right, well, I'm going to hire this outside organization to help me find how I might get hacked. And well, you know, my attackers don't have any information, so I'm not going to give this company I just hired any information because I want them to emulate real world attack conditions. That's the thinking behind black box testing. Unfortunately, it doesn't actually deliver real world conditions. All that it does is hamstring the company that they've now hired. So it's like, you know, if someone were to hire me to say, hey, can you break into this thing and then tell me nothing about it, uh, the metaphor would be like, you go to your doctor and you say to your doctor, hey, I don't feel that good. And the doctor says, okay, tell me your symptoms. And you're like, no, you're the <laughs> expert. You better figure it out. I mean, it's, that's literally what is happening when you're withholding information from the expert you're hiring to help you. So that's the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Now, the right way is what's called white box. So obviously drawn in sharp contrast from black box testing. So a white box methodology is all of the things that were woven into your question, which is that we'll, at the beginning of a project with a company, we'll actually sit down with them and we'll ask them questions about who is this for? You know, what business problem are you solving by creating this system? Why does it exist? By understanding those things, we're able to understand what things of value the system has to protect. And once we understand the things of value the system has to protect, that helps us think about, well, what types of attackers would want to attack this type of system based on their respective motivations? We talked about some of the motivations already. We certainly didn't talk about all the different motivations. It's a lengthy list. Once we have gone through that process of thinking about what do you need to protect, who are you worried about getting attacked by, then we start thinking about where will these attacks be launched. And so that's where we're working with these companies to really understand the architecture. What are the different components? Where are input fields? How do users interact with the system? What's the intended use of the system? And then once we have all that information, now that's when we start applying that more malicious viewpoint and we'll look at, we'll look at the system and say, okay, well, you know, this feature is supposed to do X, but if we do this certain series of things, we can maybe make it do Y. And then we'll explore whether or not we can make Y happen. And if we can, then we determine how severe is that, how significant of an impact is that against the things that are important and matter to this company that is you know, trying to protect the things they're trying to protect. And then we'll come back to the customer and we'll say, okay, here are all the issues that we found. Here is an example of how an attacker might actually uh, execute this exploit. And here's how severe it is so that you can understand how to prioritize fixing the issues because you're going to have a bunch and you need to know where do you start, what's first. And then we'll tell them how to fix it. 
and we'll say we'll, we'll recommend it. They'll wind up actually making the fixes, but we'll say you know if you this issue is solved either in this way by making this type of change or in this way by making this type of change, and then they make the change, and then we come back and we say, good, you you, you fixed it. The problem is solved, or you didn't quite fix it. Let's make this you know subsequent change in order to to fully solve it. And so then the benefit, of course, is the outcome of that is that. The company now knows exactly what to do. They know exactly how to do it. They have confidence they're doing it right. They're able to say, here's exactly what we did. Here's what the problems are. Here's how we're fixing it. And now you can trust working with us. All right, a quick awkward interruption here. It's fun to talk about user research, but you know what's really fun is doing user research. And we want to help you with that. We want to help you so much that we have created a special place. It's called userinterviews.com slash awkward for you to get your first three participants free. We all know we should be talking to users more, so we went ahead and removed as many barriers as possible. It's gonna be easy, it's gonna be quick. You're gonna love it, so get over there and check it out. And then when you're done with that, go on over to your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review, please. Talked a little bit about, you go in and you're talking with a, a client about um, these things of value that the system needs to protect and how do users interact with your product? I'm curious on the sort of UX research side, how do you how do you just start to pull back the layers on how users do in reality, you know, interact with the product today and then get into that hypothetical mindset of how might they choose to maliciously you know, actually interact with the product. How do you start to get that information in terms of users and, and how they're interacting with the product? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a number of what are called secure design principles or principles of secure design. These are essentially the sort of universal truths about how you build a system that's resilient against attack. And one of those principles is called psychological acceptability. And I wouldn't actually be surprised if that principle also has goes by the same name or maybe a different name in, in the UX field. But essentially what psychological acceptability means is that the security functionality must not be so cumbersome to the user that they'll circumvent it. So the sort of classic enterprise example of psychological acceptability was when, you know, years ago when these systems first became available to help you securely transfer files. So where, you know, person A has something that may be financial data or whatever, and they need to send it to person B. And someone said, well, let's come up with a secure way to do that. And so they built these systems and the systems wound up being kind of hard to use, and it was a departure from the way that people were actively already doing their work. And what was happening was, despite the heavy investment in these systems, the users were just emailing these sensitive files to each other. Right. And that was the entire problem that these systems were built to avoid. Because sending an email means you know people can forward it. Email has certainly some deficiencies to it from a security standpoint. It's not totally rubbish, but there are some issues to consider. And these, by contrast, these file transfer systems were built specifically to enable the secure transfer of files from point person A to person B. And psychological acceptability was on full display there because you saw users saying, well, that is difficult for me. 
Got it. Okay. Interesting. And then another thing you have been talking about a little bit that I'm curious about is there's malicious intent, right? So we need to have creative imagination about what bad actors might cook up, you know, in their spare time um, to do us harm. But then there's like these accidental breaches of what might users who are not necessarily trying to abuse our system, but just are users of an imperfect system what kind of trouble might, is that something that you're screening for as well? Sort of accidental hacking or not hacking, right? But accidental security issues. Yeah, hundred percent. So when you think about attackers, let's imagine a, like a tree almost. So the first fork in the tree is there's external attackers and there's internal attackers. And the difference between the two comes down to these two conditions, elevated trust, and elevated access. So for someone who has either or both of those conditions, they are an insider. Now, most people think that an employee or a user is an insider. And in most in pretty much all cases, that's true. But it's not to say that all insiders must be employees. Insiders could be anybody who has that sort of extra access. So it could be, I mean, certainly employees, but it could be consultants or third parties that you trust or who themselves have access, any sort of third party systems that you integrate with, could even be members of your family or members of the board of directors for the company. These all become insiders because that they have that those elevated conditions. Now, each of these two groups, the external attackers and the internal attackers, they then have their own respective forks where there's a few different types of each. But within insiders, the four categories are there's accidental insiders, there are the opportunistic insiders, there's disgruntled insiders, and there's determined malicious insiders. And mm -hmm. the difference between each of those also comes down to motivation. And you hit on the accidental insider, right? The person who accidentally does something. And that type of attack is in a way somewhat unique in that the accidental insider is themselves also a victim, right? They're the ones who click the link they shouldn't have clicked or download the attachment they shouldn't have downloaded. Whereas all of the other ones, the opportunist, they're actively taking action. Disgruntled, they're actively taking action. Same with the determined malicious insider. But when we're thinking about how can an attack? How could a, a system be attacked? We're considering all these different attackers, all their different motivations, and then different techniques for how you would deal with each. So, for example, one thing that is effective against accidental insiders, or is is somewhat effective against accidental insiders, is training, where you say you're not supposed to do blank, and they say, "Oh, I didn't know that. Thanks. Now I won't do blank." And now, whether or not they actually you know change behavior, that's hugely up to debate. But the point is that same message to a determined malicious insider. Now that type of attacker joins a company expressly to hurt it. Mm. It doesn't matter how much you train them. When you say to them, hey, don't do blank, they're gonna be like, yeah, no. <laughs> I'm here to do it anyway. Yeah. The And the accidental one, the thing that comes to mind, and this goes back to somebody we had on the podcast a long time ago, Aaron, I think it was a uh, cat, uh, like maybe the second mm -hmm. guest. I was talking, uh, talking about, she worked in the financial industry and I think she framed it as like the Experian effect or whatever, where when they would go out and do research with people, everyone was kind of just like apathetic of like, yeah, I don't know, like my social security number and other stuff's probably online somewhere, like everything gets hacked. And they like, you know, that's in more of a consumer setting, but it seems like part of the training challenge, 
like on the insider stuff and in a business context or whatever it may be, is getting people to like, you know, care or believe or like understand that some of this stuff is still preventable or matters. I feel like there's just kind of like, I, I don't know if you, if you see that or if that's a real part of it or not. It just feels like it's a tough dynamic to, to figure out. It sure is. My, I am, have a good a friend who is in the research department at MIT and she was talking about some of the research that she's doing about how do you change or create a culture around cybersecurity? And the point that she was making that when she said it so simply, I was like, oh my God, yes, you just distilled down, you know, years and years of security research into this simple idea is that it won't, no change will happen until you can change uh, values and behaviors and attitudes. And you won't do those things unless you make it matter to the person. Right. So the individual might be like, okay, well, yeah, I guess we don't want the company's stuff to get stolen. But when it's like, hey, if the company's stuff gets stolen, you get fired. Uh, <laughs> or the company goes out of business and you lose your job. Or we aren't profitable. So you don't get that bonus that you'd been counting on. Now all of a sudden people are like, okay, hold on, I'm listening. And it's, it really changes the way that people think about it. So that's kind of one of the big things that those in the community who are really focusing on training are narrowing in on is how do we actually change behavior? How do we make it important to people? Because the truth is, and here's the reality. So there's a, and there's a distinction, there's a discrepancy, I should say, between the reality and what's actually happening, the way people think. The reality is security is everyone's job. But the way that most people think is security is someone else's job. Mm-hmm. And until we can bridge that chasm, these accidental insider security breaches, they're going to happen all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, seems like a tough one. <laughs> cool. Maybe just for my own curiosity, but when you're out and like, you know, looking through and, and all the issues you see, whether it's from the clients or just in the, you know, what pops up in the news that I imagine you keep a pretty close eye on, how much of this stuff is still just like, Man, people aren't even doing the basics right. Stuff we've known for years versus like the hackers are keep getting more and more cutting edge and coming up with things that we never even could have imagined. Like, is there any sort of split on that? Like, I I feel like the way it's portrayed in like, you know, media or whatever, it's always kind of this cutting edge, cool stuff. But like my gut is that people just aren't even doing some of the basics right that like we've known for a long time. It's actually both of those things, but there's also a third condition too. So there's people aren't doing the fundamentals that they should be doing. True. The attackers are advancing and themselves innovating at this relentless pace. True. The third condition, though, that you didn't identify in your question, and this is the thing that kicked my butt into writing this book. When I noticed this, I said, I have to write a book. I can no longer allow this condition to exist. And it is this. I noticed that when I was talking to our customers or our prospective customers, they all were saying the same 10 things. Now, they didn't all necessarily have the same 10 problems, but all of them had some of these same 10. And I thought that was really interesting as I thought about that. I thought, you know, that's kind of fascinating that no matter what industry they're in, what kind of client they're trying to serve, what kind of user they have, what assets they protect, they all share these same security challenges. 
And then as I started thinking about how do you solve those challenges, that was the thing that kicked my butt into gear. That's this third condition. And it was the conventional solutions to those problems are almost universally wrong. So think about that. You've got companies out here trying to change the world and whatever their way is, they're trying to change the world. They recognize that they have a security challenge. They go seek the solution to the challenge. And the solution that they find is incorrect. Mm. That's crazy. That is when I connected those dots, I started writing my book that day. And so not just in my book though, but I mean, that's like being here. That's part of like what I'm trying to advocate for. The talks that I give, the keynotes I give, the workshops I teach, our, even our customers that we're talking to, that needs to change. And so I'm out there really trying to help people say, hey, look, everyone in the world kind of thinks that you're supposed to do X, but it's actually Y. You got to do this other thing. And you know, a great example was, I mean, a lot of things I've talked about today, for sure, I'll fall into this, but even that like black box versus white box, that's a great example of the way the world thinks incorrectly. Mm-hmm. And so that's the a long way of saying, you know, you're right that a lot of people are continuing to fail on the fundamentals. That's one thing. The second thing, attackers are relentlessly innovating and advancing. But there's this third thing that the people who are out there actively trying to do security right are actually often being given the wrong approaches to do it. Are there any like, are there tons of flavors of that? Or is, you mentioned the black box, white box, and I'm, you know, I'm sure there are potentially a lot of things, but is it, yeah. Yeah, there are many. Certainly the way people think about sharing information, you know, black box or white box, that's one. The way people even think about what security testing is, there's this common misconception that you can just buy a tool. You can like, push a button and the problem goes away. And there are plenty of companies that's marketing says exactly that, (laughs) literally that. And there are issues about when you should think about security. A lot of people think security is something that comes later, but that's actually a far worse way to do it. It's more expensive. It's less effective. And then even some of the things we talked about earlier about the business value. A lot of people think the business value is removing a bad thing, and that's only a a small part of it. Hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. It kind of feels like, you know, your own personal health in the sense of people miss some of the the basics, but there's also a lot of bad conventional wisdom that people get fed and can kind of send you down the wrong path too. Yeah. For sure. Cool. Ted, last question. Given this is a UX podcast, we've got lots of well-meaning UX designers, product managers, researchers listening to this, maybe not thinking a ton about security every day. What should they know in terms of creating a great UX and being security minded at the same time in 30 seconds or less. <laughs> you should know that, well, certainly the bad people are out there, right? And they yeah. are wanting to come after systems, even for reasons you might not necessarily understand upfront, but it's okay to accept that you're not the expert at that. Building things and breaking things are different. And that's why companies work with other companies who are experts in that. So my call to action to you would be, you know, study up on these ideas for sure, uh, but also accept that you don't have to become the expert in this topic area, but you should go advocate for your company to say, hey, who are we working with that's going to bring that malicious mindset? Who can help me build better, more secure systems? Because I'm not the expert, even if I am interested in it. You know, that's, it's okay 
to accept that because you're really good at what you do. So be good at what you do and then get the expertise that you need to complement what you're doing. Awesome. I'll leave it at that. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd. <laughs>